As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Corbin trying to finish off the Mets here in the eighth inning. He sets, he kicks, he delivers, swinging a ground ball, off his foot, drops right to him, picks it up, jocks to first, underhands to Kendrick, and the inning is over. Corbin the jog to the Nationals, dugout, down the steps he goes to a standing ovation here at Nationals Park. Hello, everybody, and welcome into another post-game edition of the Racing Presidents podcast. I am Ryan Warmly, in what seems like for the first time in a long time, talking to you after a Nationals win. They, of course, toppled... The Mets 5-1 to tonight. They now move up to a 17-25 and record on the season. And I am joined on the line by our producer-slash-host extraordinaire, Tim Shovers. Tim, how are you feeling tonight? Feeling good. I like quick, low-scoring baseball where there's dominant starting pitching, and that's exactly what we got tonight, Ryan. My very first note I wrote down, besides just the score and the Nats record, was fast game, exclamation point, 228. I love it. Yeah, and there were zero... Mid-inning pitching changes for the Nationals. You know, you had Corbin throw a clean eight. You had the closer come out and pitch the ninth. It's exactly the kind of baseball that I like to see. We used to talk, back when I was a scout, we used to talk with each other about how the mid-inning pitching change is just the bane of all of our existence. Because a game always seems like it's flying, and then you get into that mid-sixth, mid-seventh inning change, and it just drags and drags and drags. And as you pointed out, we did not have that tonight which was nice. Of course, the reason we didn't need it tonight for the Nats' perspective was Patrick Corbin was pretty freaking dominant. Yeah, Ryan, he you could tell early on that he brought his A-game, struck out the side in the first inning, and the only time he really ran into any trouble was the third after he gave up the RBI double. He had Cano up with a couple runners on, and nice defensive combination between him and Kendrick uh, at first base. But really, after that, like it just—it seemed like the Mets were hopeless against him. And his slider—we've seen some filthy sliders from him this year, but it seemed like it was at its filthiest tonight. Yeah, it was really good. Of course, he had 18 swinging strikes tonight. Twelve of those came on the slider. He was leaning on that pitch more than he has all season long, which is already at a pretty high percentage. Six of those swinging strikes came in the very first inning. He looked really, really good in those first three batters. Of course, all three of them struck out. In your eyes, when a team is scuffling like the Nats have recently, how important is that quick start? And, of course, tonight that applies to both the pitching and the offense. I think it's crucial, Ryan, because we've had a lot of evenings where, in in the St. Louis series, when when the Cardinals were in town recently come to mind, where the Nats fell behind 3 or 4 nothing in the first inning, and it just felt like game over. And I think of Helixson's start in Milwaukee, where Yelich homered is a recent example as well. And tonight... When you saw Corbin go one, two, three in the first, and then the Nats put up three right away, and it felt over after the third inning, didn't it, Ryan? Like you could just tell after five, it was five one, and it was probably going to end up somewhere right around there uh, two hours later. Yeah, it did feel like one of those nights where, as soon as the Nats had a comfortable lead, and by comfortable, I really just mean those three runs in the first inning, 
it didn't really feel like the the Mets were going to muster much of a comeback there. We I tweeted this out from the Nationals account, but of course Corbin struck out the first three batters for the Mets. The first three Nationals batters all came around to score, and that was obviously emblematic of, of, of really all they needed in that first inning to go on to, to get the win. Diving deeper into Corbin, his ERA in May so far is 171. Of course, interestingly enough, a third of his starts this season have come against the Mets, so he's become very familiar with those hitters. I wanted to ask you, he does have a better whip than both Strasburg and Scherzer, and he does have a better ERA than both of those guys, too. Is he still a clear third in the pecking order in your eyes, or are you willing to start shifting things around at this point? Oh, Ryan, that is that is question of the night right there. Uh, I, you know, without like kind of really doing a true deep dive on the numbers, I think it goes Strasburg, Corbin, Scherzer so far on the season. One, two, three. I had Corbin as the, as the ace of April, uh, and then uh, things slowed down a little bit. And it just really, to me, Strasburg, this has maybe been the best Strasburg season we've had, maybe since 2014 or 15. Mm-hmm. But uh, I think he's, you know, he's right up there with it. And he and Strasburg have been so good. That's why I personally feel comfortable putting Scherzer third. I don't know how, how you would rank him. You know, Scherzer, of course, the results haven't quite been there. He's been hit harder than he has been in recent seasons. But the strikeout percentage is right in line with his career numbers. And the walk percentage is right in line with his career numbers. Maybe a couple ticks here and there that look a little worse or a little better. But he's roughly been, at least according to the peripherals, the same Max Scherzer we've seen the last few seasons. Again, velocity, spin rate, all right in that same range. I'm not ready to discount him yet, but of course, as you mentioned, Strasburg and now Corbin have both been so good that it's easy to sort of bump them up onto that tier. I think I would tend to agree with you that looking backwards at what we've we've seen in 2019, it would go Strasburg, Corbin, and Scherzer. Do you expect it to stay in that order going forward from from mid-May through September and October? It wouldn't stun me if Corbin ends up being the best pitcher on the team this year. I think I just I think he's been the most consistent one, and I, you know when a guy isn't a flamethrower like that, it seems like he has the best chance to to be consistent. I also think it helps a little bit that he's pitching in a new division, so you know the bulk of the starts he's going to have. And you mentioned the third against the Mets are against a lot of guys that haven't seen him over the years because he's been been out west, uh, but. You know, I mean, we are splitting hairs here. Keep in mind, though, that, you know, you mentioned at the start of the season, Corbin was it was and is the third starter for the Nationals. He would be the ace on about 15 or 16 teams, I'd Absolutely. say. You know, let's not forget the perspective of what Corbin is as a third starter. And, and what's especially interesting about him, again, touching on the point about him facing the Mets so often early in the season, is if I were to pick a starter that would have a lot of success in his third time against a team in just a handful of weeks, Corbin wouldn't be the guy just by virtue of the fact that he does lean on that slider so much. And generally, I mean, the whole reason that starting pitchers struggle the third time through the order is professional hitters are just too good. And if they see your stuff multiple times, they're going to eventually lock in on it and, and swing the bat pretty well against it. And the Mets, despite seeing him for the third time already, and despite the fact that he really only threw two pitches tonight and and only throws two pitches for the majority of his stuff in, in most nights, are still not seeing the ball well against him. It just speaks to how great that slider really is. Yeah, and it's not just against left-handers. Like it's not just against Cano or Conforto. There, you know, he had uh, he had Alonzo hitting from the right side, mystified a few times. So it's not like your standard. Oh, he's a lefty. He's dominant against lefty situation. 
Unsurprisingly, of course, Sean Doolittle looked great in his inning out of the bullpen. He was only needed for the one inning. And, you know, it feels like basically every podcast I do, I find myself having to talk about, you know, why is the bullpen struggling? Why did this lead get lost? Why did they let the team expand the lead? Tonight, we didn't have to talk about it. So I guess the key is just not pitch anybody besides Doolittle. That is correct, Ryan. Uh, <laughs> if, if you could get if you can get him pitching three or four outs without having to go to anyone in the bullpen in between. And, uh, uh, you know, he, this is like, Davey Martinez couldn't have sketched this out any better tonight pregame. Oh, I, I literally wrote that down in my, uh, in my notes. I quote, can't draw it up bet any better than this. And that is absolutely correct. This is what he would have asked for 10 times out of 10. I mean, I guess maybe you would say he would want the complete game shut out if he could get a perfect game, no hitter, uh, which of course didn't happen. But yeah. even just getting do little work, I'm sure this was truly ideal for him. Yeah, do you, I do wonder, Ryan, do you think that if Corbin hadn't made the great kick save to get the final out in the eighth inning, would Doolittle have come in the next batter and therefore had to pitch for four outs, which is significant not only would there have been trouble in the eighth, but then is Doolittle at full availability for Thursday? It's a great question. If, if you were asking Ryan as the manager, would you do that? I would say no. I would have left Corbin in. It's not like it was a one-run game. The Nats had a bit of a cushion there. I would have been comfortable letting Corbin try and work out of it. Uh, If you ask me what I think would have happened with Davey managing, I I actually am inclined to think Doolittle would have come in just because he has not been hesitant to bring Doolittle in in the eighth inning at all this season. Yeah, I I agree. I agree with both of your points right there. I would would have said the same exact thing. And, And what's interesting is that, you know, we talked so much about how Doolittle is the only real option out of the bullpen, at least the only reliable option out of the bullpen. And eventually you can't keep leaning on a guy, but Davey knows what the record is of this team right now. He, he has to know that at least in the fans eyes or in a segment of the fans eyes, he's on the hot seat. So the fact that he has been so willing to go to the only guy he can really trust in those late inning situations really just speaks to, he realizes how important it is that they start winning games. It's not, you can't say it's early anymore. They have to start winning now. And he recognizes that. Yeah. Right. It's kind of like a regular season version of Davey Martinez's mentor, Joe Madden, his reliance on Aroldis Chapman in the playoffs three years ago. Uh, It kind of feels a little bit like that because if you remember when the Cubs won the world series, they had no bullpen outside of their all-star closer. Yeah, it's a great comparison, and you know, obviously Doolittle isn't prime or all this Chapman, but he's not too far off. He's certainly one of the, the more reliable closers out there in the game today. Of course, it wasn't just pitching tonight. The Nats did get some offense, and that's not something we've been able to say too often here as of late. Anthony Rendon looks like he's getting back into the swing of things, no pun intended. Of course, Juan Soto returned over the weekend, so the lineup looks closer to normal. Still missing Trey Turner, obviously, but... You look down at the box score, Victor Robles, two for four with a home run. Anthony Rendon, as I mentioned, three for four with a couple of doubles that were smoked. Howie Kendrick, two for four with two RBI. That seems to be his line just about every night out. What can the offense in your mind do to keep this momentum going beyond just the game? What I think the momentum is, is like, you know, you mentioned all those key cogs right there. When you have Soto and Rendon in the lineup, Howie Kendrick is not the featured hitter, and he can hit fifth or sixth and do his usual one to two hits and two to three RBIs, like, like you mentioned. And, and Rendon was great tonight, three hits, which before the injury, it seemed like he was getting three hits every single night. 
And also, one thing I kind of noticed, Ryan, I don't know if you made the same observation. You know, we always see the Soto shuffle, but I feel like there was a little extra swag to the shuffle tonight between pitches, which just was a sign to me that he's getting more and more comfortable recovering from the back issue that put him on the IL. You know, I can't say that I noticed, I made the same observation myself, but I do totally agree with your assessment that it, it does, if he was doing that, which I totally trust that he noticed he was doing that to a greater degree than before, then it does sort of seem like it would mean he's more comfortable in there. And, and of course, that comes for any hitter when you're coming back from injury, you're going to get more comfortable the more the more at-bats you see, the more, the more reps you get in the box. It, it, it can only help. Is it fair for me to assume that you, in you know, once Trey Turner comes back in the event that nobody else gets hurt, would want to see Howie playing second base a lot just to keep that bat in the lineup? Yeah, I don't see how you can go ahead and not have him in the lineup almost every single day. He's been the Nationals' MVP offensively so far. I mean, it was Rendon up until his injury, but... So, you know, Dozier's obviously not hitting, lighting the world on fire, and I just I don't see how you can keep Kendrick on the bench. Yeah, I mean, we've, keep, we've pointed to this a lot all season long, but he remains one of the best-ranked hitters in terms of uh, getting the barrel on the ball and that barrel stat from Baseball Savant. He has really— Your clean, favorite stat. Oh, it's, it's my favorite. That and then <laughs> swinging strike rate for pitchers, those are my two go-tos. You'll, I will say that in just about every podcast that I can— and Kendrick, of course, has been excelling in that area. Rendon, too, before he got hurt. And you're right. He really kept the team, I say, afloat. Obviously, they don't have a good record right now, so you can make the argument that they aren't really afloat. But for as bad as the offense has looked with all the injuries, imagine how it would have looked without Kendrick. Yeah, I mean, the days that he had the miss or they needed to give him a day off while Rendon and Soto were out, the backup catcher was the cleanup hitter. That's really all you have to say. It's It's really tough. Of course, I mentioned how can they keep up this momentum. It's just their third win in the last 10 games. And even not just looking at the offense in a vacuum, but the team as a whole, they have really, really struggled to get on any sort of run here during the season. And, you know, when you're really talented, it's easy to at some point win 8 out of 11, win 12 out of 16, win 6 in a row. Like, that's going to happen for most teams at some point in the season. And we haven't really seen that yet out of this Washington roster. Do you think that might be coming on the horizon? I mean, they still have games against Mets and then the Cubs. It's not like the schedule is that easy in the next week or so, but could this be the start of something? Uh, I say no, because honestly, Anil Sanchez is pitching on Thursday and you're looking at probably five at best six innings. And then you have the bullpen exposed and you know, you because Doolittle pitched tonight, Doolittle can't pitch two innings. He's at most good for four outs, but probably three outs. So I hate to pour cold water on that. I do think, though, when Turner comes back, whenever Trey Turner, it feels like Trey Turner's been out for three years with this broken finger. When Turner comes back and all of a sudden an all-star shortstop is reinserted into the lineup, that's a dynamic changing situation, and I think that's when the run could occur. And he looked in those first few games of the season before he hurt his finger like he could be having a true breakout year. And you know, I say breakout like he hasn't already been really good, but it looked like he was on another level. He was hitting the ball for power, stealing a ton, which of course he always does. He looked like he could be not just, hey, you're getting a really, really good shortstop, but a real difference maker that would be a difference maker on any team. To add that to a team that really needs it could be huge. Yeah, Ryan, I was like actually thinking about this earlier today, and I, I, I wasn't like staring at rosters. I was kind of thinking offhand. 
How many shortstops in base? Because I was thinking about you know the root of the Nationals' problems this year. How many shortstops in baseball would you definitively rather have than Trey Turner? And I only thought of one guy where I was like, I definitely would rather have him. There are a few others where I would like, you know, do a deep dive on the numbers or hear the argument. And I had Francisco Lindor as the only guy, definitely. And then obviously you get into Trevor stories and Carlos Correa like, where would you fall on that without doing full research? It's a great question. I'm actually of the opinion specifically when you mentioned Correa, I actually think that Bregman would be a better shortstop than Correa. And I might have Bregman as, you know, I, I feel pretty confident that I'd rather have him on my big league roster than Turner. But, of course, he's not playing shortstop right now. Yeah, he's now. a third baseman. Like, he, you got to consider him and Machado as third baseman yeah. for this conversation. You, you know, it's a great question. I'm trying to rack my brain. I don't think— I would rather have Turner than Suarez. I mean, Suarez is, is excellent. But, uh, I mean, really, just Lindor was the only guy I came up with. I, I, I will say this. I think, personally, I would rather have Correa— uh, but I'm not going to say it's like definitively, you know, objectively, you have to pick him over Turner. Uh, I really, you might be right that I'm like kind of stumbling over my words here because I'm really trying to think and, and I can't think of anybody. Lindor might be the only clear cut, no doubt about it choice. Yeah, I mean, you know, like I would rather have Turner than Bogart. To me, that's mm-hmm. not even a conversation. Um, and I'd rather have Turner than Seeger. Well, you what, know, and what about Richie Martin on the Orioles? <laughs> it took you 16 minutes when we got our Baltimore oil reference, Brian Warman. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I really am. I'm running through it. Um, Jorge Polanco has looked really good for the twins this season, but that's obviously just, you know, a month and a half. You can't put yeah, small too sample much, size too much there. stock into that yet. Elvis Andrews just got hurt and he's of course much older than Turner at this point. Trevor story. Yeah, five years, one. five years ago, obviously Andrews is, is at the top of that conversation. Oh yeah. He was, him in front of Josh Hamilton in those lineups was, was really, really yeah. impressive. I, I'm, I'm going to give it to you. I don't think there is another one besides Lindor that is a definite, no doubt about it, you would take the shortstop over Trey Turner when healthy. Of course, the health hasn't always been there for Turner, which would be one of the only few concerns. Yeah, and so it just that that is my, you know, if Nationals fans are looking for the saving grace upcoming, it's that, that you have a player of that caliber who has been away for that long, but still is going to be joining the team within a few weeks, I'm guessing. Yeah, he's, of course, rehabbing at this point in the minors, and with as long as he's missed, you'd expect him to use just about the full amount of rehab time he has available to him. He has not been hitting great in that rehab stint yet, but who the heck cares? It's just a couple games against minor league pitching. You never know what a guy's working on when he's down at that level. You mentioned Anibal Sanchez coming up in the next game here, and he'll be going up against Zach Wheeler. Is there anything from Wheeler's standpoint that you want to see the Nats do against him? Yeah, Wheeler hasn't been as good as advertised in the past, and there is a real chance to jump on him early. Uh, This game has the feel of a potential uh, high-scoring getaway day game in the afternoon, and so... Uh, if, if I'm a Nats fan, I'm hoping that, you know, Sanchez gets out of some jams, only gets, only gets dinged for two or three runs. And, and maybe, maybe we see Fetty pitch two innings again tomorrow because, you know, he pitched two innings on Tuesday. He had a day off today. And I, you know, I don't know if Davey feels comfortable going back to him again for multiple innings, but I think that's something you could see on Thursday. I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this question, but I still want to ask you, it, of course, came out recently that Madison Bumgarner had given the Giants his list of, I think it's eight teams that he can de- 
veto a trade to. How interested would you be in the Nats looking to acquire him? I bring him up because, of course, with Anibal Sanchez going, it's just a reminder that he and Hellickson have been really, really bad in the back end of that rotation. And for as good as the top three guys are and have been and will probably continue to be, there's they can only pitch so many days in a season. You need more depth in there. How how appealing is Bumgarner to you, and how much would you be willing to give up if the Giants go full fire sale mode? Yeah, so the the point to your Sanchez and Helixson thing is like, yes, they need a fourth guy. You can get away like the Nats did a few years ago where they had four starters and didn't have a fifth, but you can't do it with just three, especially when you're trying to climb out of a eight games under 500 hole. So I would say absolutely. I would be in favor of them making a run at Bass and Bumgarner, but I don't know what the Nationals necessarily have to offer because, for instance, their biggest prospect – uh, this shines off him a little bit, Carter Keboom, after after his call up to the majors, and obviously, like for instance, like Robles, who was always like the trade chip conversation for years, is is completely off the table. So I just don't know what the Nats have, Ryan, that that San Francisco would be interested in from them. It's a fair point. You, you know, it's kind of interesting thinking about the big three of Corbin, Strasburg, and Scherzer. Those are three pitchers that are good enough to just about single-handedly win you a World Series, but they're not good enough to get you to the postseason. You need depth in the rotation just to make it to October. No matter how good it is to have that top three, once you get there, uh, it doesn't matter if you don't get there. So I think it definitely is worth looking into, but you're right. I, I don't know. I don't know where else they can turn because he is just a rental, and we saw last season with Manny Machado that doesn't matter how big of a star you are and how much value you bring to a franchise. If you are only going to be there for two and a half months, you're not going to get one of those elite prospects. So frankly, even if Kibum was still looking like as, as good as he was and hadn't had that, that poor stint up in the big leagues, I'm not sure the Nats would have been comfortable giving up on him anyways for a rental. Yeah. I mean, the thinking in, in Ryan, you really, you're good at knowing the front office mentality uh, from your experience, like it seems like the trade that the Indians did a few years ago, where they gave up the farm for Andrew Miller, mm-hmm. like it seems like baseball has really changed its thinking on those kind of things, and so it, it could drive the the asking price down from what the the Giants would ask from Rizzo. But given the competition, I mean, there's so many teams that would want a bum garner that I think you'd have to part with something of value. Yeah, especially in this season where it feels like just about every team has seen one of their projected good starters struggle. I mean, maybe it's the juiced ball, maybe it's the launch angle revolution, maybe it's just a weird fluke, but it feels like there is literally not a team out there that wouldn't want to get a reliable starting pitcher, which is what Madison Bumgarner is at this stage in his career, at the very least, with certainly the potential to do more. I mean, again, I'm not talking about October as if the Nets are obviously not even close to a lock to make it. They're not even within sniffing distance right. right now. But if they were to be there, and this applies to any team that is looking that has playoff aspirations, Bumgarner is probably the defining postseason big game pitcher of our generation. So to add him to any team that is hoping to contend would certainly be a, a really nice move, obviously, if you can make it happen. But to your point, that just means there's going to be a lot of competition. And, and Ryan, to me, the team that makes most sense for Bumgarner to go to, and Nats fans aren't going to want to hear this, is Philadelphia. Because mm-hmm. though they might win the division, their starting rotation is nowhere near World Series quality right now, especially if Nola struggles. 
and they're all in for right now. So I think that, to me, is the most obvious landing spot for him. The, the two that I've been looking at are the Phillies and the Twins. Seem like they could could really use him because the Twins have a really powerful offense, and they have some depth in the rotation, but they don't have anybody who can be as good as Bumgarner on his best day, with the exception of Jose Barrios. You know, I, I was just thinking about what you were saying with the with the relievers and those rental trades from 2016. Not only did the Indians give up the farm to get Andrew Miller, but in the same year, the Yankees sent Chapman to the Cubs, as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, what, what sort of role he played in that World Series run. So the Yankees, they timed it perfectly. They made two, hey, we're getting rid of this guy on a rental, and, and we're getting a, a huge haul back. That's how they got Clyber Torres. And uh, they're sitting pretty while the rest of baseball says, why is nobody willing to make these trades with us? Yeah, then both New York teams handle well because, you know, Familia, did, they did the same thing the Mets did with Familia, where they trade him and then end up getting him back through free agents. Tim, I don't know if I've ever asked you this before. Are you a Game of Thrones guy? I am, Ryan. I watch every episode with my wife. Oh, that, that's very exciting. I watch it. I, I am not married, but even if I was, I don't know that I could watch it with another human being. My friends keep texting me, hey, you want to come over? We're having a watch party, yada, yada. I'm like, no, I'm going to be an emotional wreck. This is my favorite show. I read all the books. I'm as locked in on Westeros as one can get. Of course, the Capitals Talk podcast, Rob and the rest of the guys put together their own Game of Thrones podcast a little late in the game. There's only one episode left. But of course, if anybody is wanting to talk about theories and reactions to what they've seen, I suppose this is as good a time as any to do it. The finale is coming up here Sunday, so be sure to check out the Capitals Talk podcast, not only for season evaluations and offseason look aheads, but also for Game of Thrones talk, because it is literally impossible to get enough Game of Thrones talk in the world right now. Before I let you go, let me ask, what is your one most favorite prediction for the finale this Sunday? All right. Well, again, spoiler alert. Let, let's let's put it out there. My guess uh, is Sansa ends up on the throne. I like the guess. I've been saying for a long time that my prediction was there would be no throne. I still kind of think that might be the case, but I definitely am pulling back on that prediction uh, my, my my final bold prediction is going to be that I think John ends up just going and living out his days with ghosts and torment beyond the wall and says, forget Westeros. I'm done with it. I, we saved the thing from from White Walkers and, and I can't live here anymore. Yeah, I, I've heard that theory as well. I think that's 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 kind of ties into why I think Sansa could be on the throne. That's a fair point. I'm certainly excited to see what happens. And I can assure you that the analysis offered by the Capitals Talk podcast is a lot more informed and and in-depth than what we just gave you here. So that's consider that just a little teaser of what you might find if you check out that episode and everything else they have to offer. So be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to that podcast and to the Racing Presidents. We will continue to be with you after every single game all season long, give you interviews, previews, look-aheads, all that good stuff. So thank you so much for listening till this point. And for Tim Shovers, I am Ryan Warmly. We will see you next time. The 0-1. Swing a long drive left center field. Lagaris going back at the warning track at the wall. He's out of room and it's gone. Second night in a row for Victor Robles. Home run number eight. A solo shot into the brew house red seats. Nationals get the run right back. It's four to one.